So we are continuing our study in Genesis. Uh, we're going to be taking a little bit of a chunk of a chunk of scripture today. Um, last week we looked at Cain and Abel and the story of how Cain murders his brother Abel and how God curses Cain and sends him east to the land of Nod and um, and yet preserves his life. Uh, today we're going to be looking at genealogies, not the most exciting or scintillating thing, uh, but we're going to be stepping back, sort of back and looking at a bigger picture. If we zoomed in on Cain and Abel, now we're stepping back and we're going to look at uh, a, a large span of time covering a large uh, group of people in this period before the flood. So we're going to be looking at the line of Cain and the line of Seth. So chapter the end of chapter 4 and the beginning and all of chapter uh, 5. Uh, so with that, let's turn to the text and read God's word. You can find it printed for you in your bulletins or in your Bibles, Genesis 4, verse 17 to uh, chapter 5, verse 32. Now, Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch he born, uh, was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methu- Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives, the name of one was Ada, and the name of the other Zillah. Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of all those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother name, brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Naama. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son also was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made man, he made him in the likeness of God, male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Canaan. Enosh lived after he fathered Canaan eight. 815 years, and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years, and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. 
when, when Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Jared were 962 years and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived, after he fathered Lamech, 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, once again we ask for your grace and your spirit to help us understand your word. We need your help, Holy Spirit. Be with us, we ask. Transform our hearts that we might see Jesus and walk in him. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, anyone who's read through the whole Bible knows that there are often long sections of uh, impossible names to read. <laughs> so that was a test. It was a test of my training, I suppose, but it was a Test, you know, there's a great book, I think, um, one of my favorites that I used to read to the kids. Um, uh, oh, I'm forgetting the name. Fox, hop, what is it? F- Fox and Socks. If you ever have a chance to read it, it's one of the most fun books you'll ever read. And yet, every time I read it, I stumble in, in reading of it. Fox and Socks. But reading the names is often like that. And we come across these genealogies all throughout Scripture. And we often get to them as we're reading through Scripture and we read maybe the first couple names, and we skim a bunch, and then we come to the end, and then we go back into the narrative, and we kind of leave that as flyover territory. Um, that's what we do. Um, and, and sometimes, to be fair, the, the point isn't each individual name. Oftentimes, it isn't each individual name. But there is something that's given to us in the text that we're supposed to know and understand. We'll remember uh, that this from 2 Timothy 3.16, that all Scripture... All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That each passage was given to us for our good. And so then we have to ask the question, okay, so what's the good of all of this, right? Why? Why this? Um, And the most obvious aspect of these genealogies are names. That that is the nature of them. They are names. We read these very obscure names, people lost into the annals of history, but they're given to us. Genesis records them. And if we go back in Genesis to chapter 1 and 2, we remind ourselves that naming is actually really important. It's a big deal. 
It is not only that God names, God names the created order. It says that he gave the name to the light, into the darkness, into the heavens. We see here in our text that he even names man. He says, Adam, giving you that name. And of course, Adam is called to then go and name the animals. He even gives his wife a name. In fact, he gives her two. Two names, Eve and woman. Naming is significant. Sometimes for us and our children, our names are significant. Um, you know, we name them for various reasons, values that we have. You know, I love those Christian names like grace and charity, um, you know, peace or patience. Like, these are names that we can give to our children. Sometimes they're honors that we give to them. Uh, maybe they reflect some cultural heritage or some family name. Now, in full confession, Owen, I didn't have any of that in my mind when I named you. I just liked your name. The other two, I had some thoughts of why we named them. But for Owen, I didn't really have any reason for his name. I didn't choose it except that we liked the name. But now, now that we have Owen and we have Heather and Liza, these names carry great significance to me. Very great significance and weight. Well beyond whatever meaning those names held before we attached them, right? They're, they're, they're great because they're my children. These genealogies here in Genesis carry the names of real people who lived and who died. Well, mostly anyway. We'll come to Enoch. Um, and they're significant in as much as they were made. These people were made as image bearers of God. Or maybe better put, they were made to carry God's name in the world about them. In fact, the most significant comment in our comment that's made in our text is just one little line at the very end of chapter 4 in verse 26, right after the intro to the birth of Seth. You'll notice it says, says this one little line where the text notes, at that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. Well, what does that mean? It seems they are saying that there had been, before that point, people not calling on the name of the Lord. And we'll look into that. But I just want to note here that names are significant, but God's name is the most significant name. The most important name. Wrapped up in God's name is who He is as our Creator. Who He is as the powerful judge of heaven and earth. And who He is as our Redeemer. This morning, as we consider all the names in the list here, and we won't look at them all equally for sure, um, I want us to ask, am I one who carries God's name around with me? Am I one who calls on the name of the Lord, the one who abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness to a thousand generations? Psalm 145 says, the Lord is near to all who call on Him. And so this is our, my plea. This is, this is our, our, our call today. It is to call upon the name of the Lord, who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness to a thousand generations. And we'll look at this in three ways. First, are you about making a name for yourself? 
Is it about you? Second point I want to look at is this idea that the Lord bestows his riches on all who call on his name. We'll look at that. And then finally, I want us to land on this idea that there is one name that is above every name. There is one name that is above every name. So with that, first, are you about making a name for yourself? Just as a reminder, Cain, uh, obviously we're looking at Cain's line first, and Cain, uh, we learn, murdered Abel. We also learn that he was uh, cursed by God, that he had to go out of God's presence, right? He had to go east to the land of Nod. He was going to be a wanderer, it says, and that he was uh, going to be a fugitive. And, of course, Cain complains to God, whoa, this is too great. People are going to kill me when they see me. So God mercifully puts a mark on him that no one would take vengeance on him. Um, but nevertheless, Cain goes off east and establishes life in Nod, east of the garden. Now, it's interesting because we're told that Cain was to be a wanderer, a nomad, somebody who was a fugitive, who, you, you know, we have these, I don't know, maybe cinematic visions of what that looks like, some, some lone soul walking through life and, and, you know, all the world looking bad at him. But that's actually not what we see in Cain. Cain gets married. Cain goes and he uh, establishes or begins to establish a city. It seems he's settling down. And so then that then begs the question, okay, so what did it mean that he was a wanderer? If he's settling down and having a family and starting a city and all this stuff that goes along with civil, how is he a wanderer? Um, I, I might just say this, that, that God preserved his life as promised, but his wandering was not about perpetual movement, but rather about his being moved away from the presence of God, wandering apart, disconnected, untethered from God himself. And we'll come back to that as we think about what does it mean to live apart from the presence of God and make a name for ourselves. What does it look like? But before we get there, what do we learn about Cain's life and family? First, that he had a family, and presumably a big one that eventually grew into a city. To be clear, as we look at the biblical genealogies, um, there's something to keep in mind. We need to do a little bit of, uh, you may have a lot of questions about the text. I understand. These are, these are ancient texts, and there are things that might confuse us. But the first thing that I want to note about genealogies uh, in the Bible is that they're selective. Okay, they don't give us. We know this, of course, if you go to the genealogies of Jesus, we know that they're selective, right? They, they kind of pick and choose who it is that's in the genealogy. Um, not every single child is written down into the genealogy. Um, not only that, but we only get one set, right? Like Eve had other children, but we're really just focusing in on one person, Cain, and then later Seth. But we presume there were others that, that were born to Eve. In fact, it's told to us earlier in the chapter. Um, just as a note, maybe this is a curious thing, but uh, from Adam to Lamech, so this is Cain's line, or, or, yeah, so Cain's line, or better yet, from Cain to Lamech and Lamech's children, that next generation, so there's um, uh, those three sons and a daughter that are mentioned, is seven generations. Is that significant? Well, I, maybe. Um, 
We know in the Bible seven is a pretty significant number, but it at least shows the measure of completeness, right? Uh, sometimes it points out perfection, and I don't think it's talking about moral per perfection. We'll see that clearly in the text, but at least it's perfectly complete. It's done. Um, then when we look at the next genealogy, when we see the line of Seth, we'll notice that, and it depends how exactly you count, but from uh, Adam to Noah is ten generations. Ten generations. And then if we zoom forward to the next sort of major genealogy in the book of, uh, in the book of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 11, if we go from Noah all the way to um, Abraham, we get another ten generations. So there's a balance, right? The, the writer is highlighting something. Uh, we might not understand it fully, but my point in this is it's 10 and 10 and 7. They are selective genealogies meant to highlight something about the nature of God. Uh, the 10, the completeness of those things getting us all the way to Abraham. And from Abraham, we have the people of God unfolding in the book of book of Genesis. But that's, that's a little bit of an aside just to, talk, to, just to talk to you about how genealogies work. So Cain's family grew and settled into the land of Nod and built a city named after his son Enoch. Then we have a list of folks, children, without any information. Irad, Mahujael, and Methushael. Uh, then Lamech. And uh, the emphasis on the genealogy is definitely on Lamech. We get a big chunk on him. Um, and I know it's going to be confusing, too, because there's names in both genealogies. Enoch we'll see again, but it's a different Enoch. Lamech we'll see again, but it's a different Lamech. Uh, so I understand that that's confusing, and I would simply ask the question, well, when you're in a setting like this, how many Johns are there? How many Matts are there, right? So just trying to keep everyone straight. But... Uh, we, we recognize that there's some repetition of names, but that they aren't the same person. Anyway, this Lamech, we're told, took two wives, Ada and Zillah. All right. Genesis 1. Adam and Eve are created in the garden. Eve is presented to Adam. Adam says, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And then there's a little comment at the at, at, there in Genesis 2. There's a comment that says, and therefore it is said that two shall become one flesh. Right? Two shall become one. Right? And throughout Scripture, especially when we get into the Gospels, Jesus will clearly say that nothing should break that apart. I recognize that divorce is part of the brokenness of our world, but that's not how it was meant to be. Two become one. And yet here... Not only we have we seen murder, but now we have a form of adultery, right? Uh, two wives, polygamy or bigamy, but, you know, it's, it's the beginning. Um, and I just point out, because some will say, well, we know that other biblical characters had multiple wives. Abraham had multiple wives. The king, Solomon, had I don't know how many wives. David had multiple wives. We see throughout uh, the biblical narrative that there are uh, these examples of polygamy. And we might say, but doesn't God never judges them on the spot for, for that. They just kind of gloss over it. They had many wives or whatever the case is. And I would simply say that oftentimes Bible doesn't uh, say outright this, this thing is wrong or bring judgment, but then you see it played out in the life. And you look at David's life and his kids' lives and it was messy. And Abraham, what do you got? Isaac and Ishmael? It's a, it's a mess, right? Uh, Jacob. 
Anyway, here we have the introduction to polygamy. After Lamech, we have three sons and a daughter, Jabel, Jubal, and Tubal-Cain, and a daughter, Naama. And we're told that each of these sons developed some aspect of civilization. For the first, it was animal husbandry, right? It was taking care of flocks. It was the development of, of raising cattle. For the second, it was music. It was making of instruments and music. For the third, it was metallurgy and forging and creating metal instruments, presumably weapons, considering who Lamech was and the kind of guy he was. In other words, we're given a picture of the development and progress, if you want to use that word, of mankind on the earth. This was a picture of the development of culture and civilization. And a couple notes on this, uh, as uh, we see it included here in the record. Um, first, one positive thing, despite Cain's sin and his being disconnected from God and thrust out of his presence, God's common grace continues to shine down on Cain and his children. They live, they thrive, they prosper, they create, they reflect God's image in the world. They build cities and they flourish. Um, despite their rebelliousness, God is merciful to them. Now, there is a time when that will end. We'll see in the very next chapter when the flood comes, when the wickedness and sin of God's wickedness and sin of the whole world uh, becomes so great that he cleanses the world by a flood to judge. Nevertheless, God not only blesses this line with life, they in fact flourish and they add to the world many good things. And in that, I think they have time to repent and turn to the Lord. Now, we don't know what happens to every single one of them, but it seems clear that that was not part of the story that they did, but they had the opportunity. God was patient with them. I also think it's important to note that as we look at the world, it's easy to look at all the evil that goes on in the world around us and miss the ways in which humanity, despite the fall, still reflects God as creator. When we look at the world, we can say and praise God for the wondrous work that humanity has done over the, over the centuries, over the millennia, in creating and reflecting God as Creator, All of us are image bearers, and we can praise that creativity and learning that goes on in the world. Of course, in as much as it conforms to the Word, right? So, we can praise the good and reject the bad. But nevertheless, we have to acknowledge the wonder of God uh, and the advancements of knowledge and understanding that people make across civilizations despite their godlessness. We are reflectors of the image of God. And God's patience with the world ought to be a caution for us, not to write people off too quickly. But we are called to patience and compassion as we reflect God's character and engage the world. So as we look at Cain and how God preserves that line and allows it to flourish for a season, that ought to inform us in how we live lives with those who yet turn, had not yet turned to the Lord. We have to have patience and compassion 
recognizing them as image bearers of God. But the most glaring thing to note about Lamech, and really the line of Cain as a whole, is that there is nothing said about God at all. They don't reflect God. There's no relation to him in who they are or in what they do. And so it shouldn't shock us that Lamech is like his great-great-great-grandfather Cain, if we assume that there's nothing in between, which there probably are. Uh, when he says Cain's revenge is sevenfold and Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold, that he killed a man for wounding him and a young man for striking him. And I'll just point out that this word for young man could be translated child. Lamech was wicked. For Cain and for Lamech, and presumably for the generations in between, they were not connected or concerned with the name of the Lord. Rather, they were concerned with their own name. That was their problem. I want to consider this for ourselves for just a minute, just to apply this. Are you about your own name? The word, I'm sorry, the world encourages us to make a name for ourselves, right? You do you. It's all about you. You need to promote yourself. You need to make a name for yourself. You need to go out and grab it. Take what's yours. Don't let it get away. And let me just ask the question, is that your goal? Is that your aim in life? Is it, is it about you to make a name for yourself, to be written down in the history books? Remember, Cain's line is written in the history books. They've, they've been given that great uh, notation. They've been, they've been given all this glory. They're the ones who make instruments and who establish how to raise animals and how to make metal instruments. You want to make a name for yourself be written down in history books. Don't get me wrong, I don't think what they did was wrong in and of itself, but they did not relate it to their creator. It was about them. What about you? It's something we have to ask ourselves. Why do I do what I do? Is it about me? For Cain and Lamech, it was about protecting their name and reputation at all costs, repaying every offense, not letting any grudge go, making sure that they got their pound of flesh. What about you? When Scripture says, vengeance is mine, thus says the Lord, does that annoy you? Does that frustrate you? Does that make you angry to think, I can't take matters into my own hand and make this right? This person did this to me. I'm going to get them back. They deserve it. It's about making a name for yourself. Or are you more concerned with God's name? With rejoicing in who He is? I think this fundamental question, and really this is the fundamental question, are you about your glory or God's glory? This is why at the very outset of our confessional catechism, our short catechism, it asks, what is your chief end? And we say, our chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Our world, our lives, everything 
revolving around us is not about us, but about bringing glory and reflecting God as our creator. Cain and his progeny received their glory, and then they were swept away in the flood. They got it. It's written down. There's their glory, and that's the end of the story. Friends, earthly glory is a fleeting thing, like chasing the wind. Uh, have you ever chased a kite? Like, you get it up for a half a second, and then it runs, and then it goes down and falls, and you're constantly trying to catch the wind, and you just run and run and run and run and run, and before you know it, you're hundreds of yards from where you started, and the kite is still sitting on the ground. If you make the world about you, you will be like chasing that kite, constantly falling to the ground. There'll be no end to the wandering. No end. Though you might receive temporary glory, you will remain a fugitive upon whom the judgment of God ultimately falls. Turn and call upon the name of the Lord. And that brings me to my second point. I realize that took a little while. We had to get into the text. But secondly, the Lord bestows his riches on those who call on his name. This sounds extravagant, doesn't it? Um, that the Lord bestows riches on those who call upon his name. But you know what? That's straight from the Apostle Paul in Romans 10. That's what it says. The Lord bestows riches on those who call upon him. What does that mean that he bestows his riches? Well, let's look at this next genealogy. We get a preview at the end of chapter 4, and as I noted, there's a distinct shift with this description. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. And of course, this note brings up all sorts of questions. Does that mean that Adam and Eve didn't call on the name of the Lord? Did they forget about God? Was that not part of them? I I don't know for sure, but this is going to be my gentle guess on it. Um, After the death of Abel, we have only Cain and his progeny in view. So the writer, Abel dies, and then all the focus is on Cain and his line. And then, as we shift our focus back to Eve and to Seth, all of a sudden, we're reminded, people begin to call on the name of the Lord. I think the author is trying to say there's a difference, fundamental difference between the line of Cain and the line of Seth. Adam and Eve, I'm sure like many parents who watched their wayward children, I'm sure that they called on the name of the Lord daily. In fact, we have a note about Eve's response when Seth is born. What does she say? She says, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. The word for Seth, the name Seth, remember we talked about significance of meanings. The name Seth is, sounds like and is similar to the word appointed. And here, you'll remember, Eve talked about Cain in a similar way. Uh, But in that setting, she acknowledged God's help, but she said, uh, I begot Cain by God's help. And now she's saying, Seth is from the Lord. He appointed him to me. And we see both in this statement here, God's or or Eve's uh, love of God, her gratitude and her grief. Did you notice? Because Abel was killed by Cain. So the question is, was there people calling in the name of the Lord? I think Adam and Eve. But the shift is from Cain's line to Seth's line. And so now we move and look at Seth's line more in detail. Throughout Scripture, calling on the name of the Lord is akin to faith. It's the recognition 
of God as God and as Savior. So Psalm 145, what I read earlier. Uh, and then here in 2 Timothy 2, 22, Paul says, So flee youthful passions, pursue righteousness, faith, and love, and peace, along with those who call on the name of the Lord with a pure heart. Calling on the name of the Lord is a mark of the believer, of their faith. Those who call on the name of the Lord are ones who put their trust and hope in God. They're the ones who do righteousness, who pursue it, who have faith, who have love and peace. So what do we notice about the line of Seth, of those who begin to call on the name of the Lord? The very first thing that stands out to us is the repeat language of Genesis 1. Did you notice this in, in, in the beginning of, of chapter uh, 5? It says this, um, The book of the generations of Adam, when God created man, he made him in his likeness, God, uh, in the likeness of God, male and female, he created them and he blessed them and he named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. We have this echo of Genesis chapter 1 right here at the beginning of chapter 5. And there are a lot of differences. At the beginning of Genesis 1, it's all about God making man by the power of his word. Here it's about Adam having a son through procreation, a derivative, and yet reflective of God the Creator. Remember, he told Adam and even the, uh, he told man in Genesis 1, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Subdue it. And here Adam is reflecting that command. The second thing we notice in the lineage are the long lifespans. You can't escape it, right? So-and-so lived this many years, had a son, then lived this many years, and so lived a total of this many years. Um, now, some of you might be wondering, how is that possible? And I'm going to tell you, I don't know. I believe it to be true, and I'd just like to point out that in the ancient Near East world, it wasn't uncommon um, in one of the ancient texts, the kings of one of the ancient um, Canaanites, I think, uh, they made a list of all the kings, and they told their years of, of rule, and it was like 2,000 some odd years, 2,000 some odd years, 2,000, 3,000 years, you know, these long, huge lifespans. One thing to note about this is none of the people lived beyond 1,000 years. Now, I'm just touching, I don't know the answer to all this, but it's kind of interesting to me that throughout Scripture, whenever God references his eternality or when he references his sort of longevity, it says things like, to the day, to the day, to the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day. It's almost as if God is saying, here, I'm blessing you with long life, but you can't come towards me. I am the eternal God, the king. And yet, they lived a really long time, and I don't know how. Um, what we also know is that after the flood, that God limits the span of years, uh, right? It says they're going to live 120 years, and then there was this sort of slow decline until, yep, that's pretty much where we are today. Um, I think the, on modern record, it might be, what, 119 years? I don't know, some Japanese guy? I'm not sure. Uh, living, living a really long time, but 120 years, and... I think we have to ask the question is, why do we only humans only live that long? I don't know, because God determined it. They are long lives. And, and 
what does that mean? Why include this little detail in the text? And it's included over and over and over again in the line of Seth. And I think part of it is it's a symbol of God's blessing. Right? What was the curse? The curse of God was eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and what? You will surely die. Death was the curse. And so the longer that somebody lived, the, the sort of less that curse had that, that pull. Like there's, there's this reality like, oh, we could just live longer. We could live forever. And when you think about this, this is the desire and longing of humanity forever, right? Where is the fountain of youth? How much exercise? What kind of diet? If I, like Ted Williams, if I just take my brain and put it in a freezer somewhere, maybe I can live forever. This is a longing that we have. A longing that we have. Some of you might ask the question, though, isn't living long a form of suffering? A couple things to note about it. One is, um, it's only suffering because of the effects of death in the world. Right? All of Scripture actually acknowledges that that, that long life is a sign of God's blessing. The Proverbs say, wisdom and long life go hand in hand. And yet, this side of glory, we recognize that oftentimes long life is fraught with suffering, with sorrow, with grief, with pain, with the effects of the fall, with death itself. And this is where the wonder of this text actually, I, I just... You know, there's, there's so much mystery in it, but uh, you have all these long lives. But then in the very middle of it, you have Enoch. Did you notice Enoch? Right between Enoch, Enoch's father, and Enoch's son are both the longest people that ever lived. So you people who like trivia, if you're ever on a trivia show, who's the longest person that ever lived, according to the Bible, it's Methuselah, right? But his grandfather, uh, Jared, was also a long lifer. He just missed Methuselah by a few years. Um, but there between Jared and Methuselah is Enoch. So our longing for eternal life, our longing to, to not know the pangs of this world, to not know suffering and death. And there it says Enoch walked with God. He was one that called on the name of the Lord. And it says twice that he walked with God. This is who he is. This was what defined him. He was a man of God who walked with God. There are two, possibly three people in all of Scripture that then were taken by the Lord and were not told of their death. Enoch, possibly, possibly Moses. We're told that he was up on the, on the mountain and he was no more. And then Elijah, who was taken away in that chariot of fire. When we see those, it is a picture of what we most long for. To, to be free from this body of corruption, the sin that infects us, the pain and sorrow that attends to us, all the grief that, that comes, apart, comes as a part of this world. And we long for that eternality, that, that ability to not feel that suffering and pain any longer. And this was Enoch. This is the ideal this is the blessing of God. This is what it means when we call upon the name of the Lord to enjoy God's blessing is to be close to Him, to walk with Him. And what does it mean for you and I 
to walk with the Lord. It begins with calling on His name. It begins with listening to His words. It begins with walking like Him, reflecting Him in our lives. It means growing in knowledge of who He is and the wonder of God, the Lord, the Lord, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Do you know Him? Do you walk with Him? One of the saddest parts about this text is something else in this beautiful genealogy that shows the blessing of God and the line of the seed of the woman as, as it is kind of portrayed for us. We're moving from, from Seth and we're going to Noah, Noah who will deliver God's people through the flood and redeem them. And then ultimately from Noah to Abraham to the people of God to the Lord Jesus Christ. But before you get there, in this genealogy, we see something else that's really disturbing. And I appreciate Rome yesterday pointing this out to me. Because I hadn't thought about it in this, in this light. But we have a lot of genealogies in the Bible. But this is the only genealogy where the repetition is this. And he died. And he died. And he died. And he died. carried through this line remains the fall. When the water comes over the world and washes it and Noah and his family are left, immediately Noah, we'll look at this in a few weeks, Noah comes out of the ark and he makes covenant with God and then he sins. The fall remains. Death remains. As these people whether it was Enoch or Methuselah or Lamech or Noah, they looked forward to that place where there would be no more death, no more sorrow, no more sin. And this is where I want to end and just conclude. When we think about names, these names are written down for us to encourage us and remind us, what does it mean to call the name of the Lord? It means to be a people blessed by God. It means to be a people that walk with the Lord, who know that transforming power of the Holy Spirit. But at the end of the day, it's not these names that matter. They're not the name that matters most of all. But it is the seed of the woman that comes to crush the head of the serpent. It is the one that is promised, but is not fulfilled, not through Noah, not through Abraham, not through David, but through Jesus. And here's the wonder, right? The wonder is that the crush, the, the death blow to Satan and death itself comes through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why Philippians 2 is such a powerful passage. And I'm going to conclude just by reading this because I think it just explains for us the significance of what it means to believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours, in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men 
And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. What does it mean for you to call on the name of the Lord? It means for you to call out to the Lord Jesus Christ, Savior of heaven and earth, the one who is exalted above all, and to walk with him, to trust in him, to worship him, the one who entered into the death of this world. And then he died. But he rose again. And what hope we have that we will one day walk with the Lord without any of the pain and sorrow and suffering of this world. Friends, call upon the name of the Lord. He is slow to anger. And he is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness to a thousand generations. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.